This episode includes discussion of suicide and sexual violence. Please keep this in mind when deciding if, how, and when you'll listen. For resources on these topics, visit spotify.com forward slash resources. What would you do if one of your best friends was having an affair with a married man? A married man who you suspected of foul play. A married man who was also the president of the United States. Would you keep quiet and cover it up for the leader of the free world? Or would you tell the truth? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. This week, we're telling the story of Linda Tripp, the secretary who helped expose one of the most infamous scandals in modern American history, U.S. President Bill Clinton's affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. As far as Linda Tripp was concerned, the first decade and a half of her life was practically idyllic. Born Linda Rose Caratanuto, she grew up in suburban middle-class New Jersey in the 1950s. Life was predictable and straightforward, right up until the moment her father was caught having an affair with a colleague. Linda's world turned upside down. Her parents' marriage descended into acrimony and bitterness, eventually resulting in divorce. Everything that Linda had loved was gone, and she blamed her father. His infidelity and lies had destroyed their lives. She could never forgive him. Determined to recreate the stability of her childhood, Linda got married when she was just 21 years old, in 1971. Her husband, Bruce Tripp, was a career army officer. For the next two decades, they traveled the world with their two kids. While Bruce climbed through the ranks and Linda worked administrative and secretarial jobs within the military. By the time Bruce became a colonel, Linda, too, had top-secret clearance, thanks to her work with Army intelligence units. But Linda's days as a military wife were numbered. When she and Bruce divorced in 1990, she found herself once again at loose ends. This time, though... The 41-year-old mom decided to rely on herself for stability. Over her years as a military administrator, she had built up a solid reputation as a diligent and hardworking civil servant. That, plus her security clearance, qualified her for a number of jobs. When she heard from a friend that the White House was hiring for its floating pool of secretaries, she leapt at the opportunity. Linda quickly found she loved working at the White House. George H.W. Bush was president, and although she was never a registered Republican, Linda liked working for his administration. The senior Bush was an old-school military man himself, a World War II veteran in his mid-60s. Many of his staff were military, too, which made Linda feel comfortable. She also especially enjoyed getting to meet the celebrities who came through the halls of power. Linda had been working in Bush's White House for three happy years, when, in January 1993, everything changed. 
47-year-old William Jefferson Clinton was elected president, and Linda did not approve. From day one, she found President Clinton's staff much too casual. They ate pizza and swore in the Oval Office. They dressed in slacks and didn't bother with jackets. They didn't seem to respect either the office or the military enough. Worst of all, Linda felt that the administrative work around her was becoming sloppy. And then there was all that baggage that Clinton brought with him. During the 1992 presidential campaign, Clinton had been dogged by allegations that he had had an ongoing affair with a woman named Jennifer Flowers. Now, there were rumors that some of the young women working at the White House had only been hired to keep them quiet about special relationships with the president. Other rumors weren't so personal. There were questions around Clinton's financial involvement in a real estate development back in Arkansas, where he had previously been governor. Though it wasn't clear if Clinton had done anything wrong, both the press and Clinton's Republican rivals leapt on the story. The persistence of the Whitewater controversy, as it was called, led law enforcement to get involved in the summer of 1993, less than half a year into the president's first term. Linda found all the rumors swirling around Clinton distasteful and unbecoming of a U.S. president. When she was assigned to the team of the lawyer handling Whitewater, she wasn't thrilled. So it was a pleasant surprise to find that she liked her new boss, Deputy White House Counsel Vince Foster. Vince had been a legal partner at First Lady Hillary Clinton's previous law firm and had an air of decency and professionalism that Linda appreciated. But Vince was struggling himself. As the point man dealing with the controversies, he was overworked, constantly under pressure, The worse things got, the more his stress and anxiety grew. When he was named in the press and personally attacked by powerful anti-Clinton voices in the media, he became deeply depressed. On the afternoon of July 20th, 1993, Vince walked by Linda's desk on his way out of the office. He grabbed a handful of chocolates from a bowl and said he'd be back soon, but he never returned. That night, Vince Foster took his own life in a park just outside of Washington, D.C. His suicide note, found torn up at the bottom of his briefcase, defended the Clintons and swore that they never had any involvement in any illegal activity. Linda was devastated by Vince's death. He had been a good man and a good lawyer. He deserved better. When Linda arrived at work the next morning, though, She was horrified to find that Vince's office hadn't yet been sealed off by investigators. Yet again, the Clinton people weren't taking things seriously. A man had died. The situation deserved some respect. While investigators ultimately agreed that his death had been a suicide, Linda was still angry about the lack of order and procedures the morning after. Indeed, In the subsequent weeks, she became increasingly critical of the way the situation had been handled. Her outspokenness soon drove a wedge between her and her colleagues. Linda's disillusionment only grew when, one day in late November 1993, 
she ran into a volunteer White House intern in the hall. Kathleen Wiley wasn't a typical intern. She was in her mid-40s and married to a major Democratic fundraiser. She'd mainly taken the position to be close to the action. When Linda saw her that day, she seemed a bit flustered and excited. Linda asked her what was going on, and Kathleen whispered that the president had just come on to her in a private meeting. For Linda, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. All of the rumors swirling around the president, and now this. Thinking of her father's unforgivable infidelity, Linda decided right then that she was done. She simply couldn't work for a man who had affairs. By the middle of 1994, Linda started a new job at the Pentagon's public affairs office. As happy as she was to be back among military people, she couldn't help but miss the White House's excitement and intrigue. She blamed President Clinton for making her situation untenable. Fortunately, the constant news coverage of the various White House controversies made sure she didn't get too jealous. Shortly before Linda moved to the Pentagon, the Justice Department had appointed a special prosecutor to look into Whitewater and the surrounding controversies. Robert Fisk was the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a respected prosecutor. Both Clinton opponents and allies trusted he'd do a good job. In addition to the broader Whitewater question, Fisk was also expected to look into Vince Foster's death. Vince's suicide had become the target of a popular right-wing conspiracy theory, which suggested that he had actually been murdered. After a thorough investigation, Fisk determined that Vince had, in fact, taken his own life. Fisk's team also determined that neither the president, the first lady, nor any Clinton staffers had committed any crimes in the Whitewater affair. Late that year, though before the investigation was officially closed, Fisk was replaced by a longtime Republican operative. Kenneth Starr was a career conservative bureaucrat and lawyer who had come up in the Reagan administration and was deeply embedded in the Christian right. His appointment presented Clinton's opponents with a chance to do everything they could to bring down the president. Simultaneously, a woman named Paula Jones had just come forward to accuse President Clinton of sexual harassment. She claimed that he had made unwanted sexual advances towards her in 1991, while he was governor of Arkansas. Three years later, she was filing a sexual harassment lawsuit against him. With all these allegations and scandals dominating the news cycle, Linda thought the American public might like to hear about the behaviors she'd witnessed during her time in the White House. But if she was going to put her name out there, she'd have to make it worth her while. Perhaps she could write a book, a tabloid-style, tell-all, gossipy one about what really went on at the White House. Linda decided to run the idea past Lucianne Goldberg, a notorious literary agent. Lucianne was a queen of political gossip. She moved in right-wing circles and had at one time been a spy for Richard Nixon. Needless to say, she loved Linda's idea. 
Almost immediately, she put together a proposal for a book called Behind Closed Doors, What I Saw at the Clinton White House. Linda panicked. She hadn't expected things to move quite so quickly. If she wrote this book, she'd lose her stable Pentagon job and her entire government career. She couldn't risk upending her life like that. To Lucianne's dismay, Linda pulled the plug on the whole project. She settled back into the mundanity of the Pentagon, keeping an eye on the White House from afar. And that might have been the end of it, if not for a new arrival at the Pentagon in April 1996. She was a new secretary, half Linda's age, a bubbly 22-year-old from Beverly Hills, California. And just like Linda, she had been shifted over from the White House. Her name was Monica Lewinsky. When 47-year-old Linda Tripp and 22-year-old Monica Lewinsky met as secretaries at the Pentagon in April 1996, they became fast friends. Despite their age difference, the two bonded over White House gossip, their taste in clothes and hairstyles, fad diets, and a shared dislike of various characters around the office. When they weren't at work, they would spend hours on the phone together. A few months into their friendship, in the summer of 1996, Monica confessed to Linda that she had a secret. She had just ended a relationship with someone at work. It was someone in the White House, someone older. She usually referred to him as handsome, though when she was particularly upset about the way things had ended, she called him the big creep. It didn't take long for Linda to figure out that Monica's ex wasn't just any White House staffer. The bright-eyed young woman was talking about Bill Clinton, the President of the United States. The affair had started the year before, in November 1995, when Monica was just a lowly intern at the White House. She had met the President a couple of times, and they had liked the look of each other. Flirtatious looks had quickly developed into intimate liaisons, usually in the president's private study just off the Oval Office itself. It didn't take long for other White House staffers to suspect something was going on. There was no reason for an intern to be having so many private meetings with the president. In order to avoid yet another scandal, it was decided that Monica would have to leave, which was how she had ended up at the Pentagon. With her reassignment, Monica and Clinton had broken off the physical part of their relationship, but they still talked, over the phone, and by messages passed through the president's private secretary. Monica believed that he would eventually help her get back into the action at the White House. She had been pestering him for months for a job, but nothing was happening. When Linda had heard the whole story, she was, once again, disgusted at Clinton's behavior. She cared about Monica as both a friend and a sort of surrogate daughter. She hated to see this hopeful young woman being strung along by someone who didn't mind using his position of power for personal gain. Over the next nine months, Linda became Monica's trusted confidant, the person she cried and vented to whenever Clinton snubbed her or let her down. The more she learned and the more she saw her friend in pain, the angrier 
Linda God. She didn't know how much longer she could take it. And then, on March 24, 1997, a man wearing a visitor's badge unexpectedly showed up at her cubicle. He introduced himself as Michael Isakoff, an investigative reporter for Newsweek magazine. He wanted to ask Linda some questions about her time in the White House. Isakoff was looking into the Paula Jones allegations. His reporting had largely corroborated Paula's account. Now he was chasing another lead. A rumor that something similar had happened to White House volunteer Kathleen Willey. He'd heard through the grapevine that Linda could be a corroborating witness. Her heart pounding, Linda hustled the reporter out of the building. She told him she didn't want to speak to him. She had already decided she wasn't going to do this. But as she turned to go, Linda hesitated. She didn't want to betray Monica, but she couldn't just let Clinton keep getting away with his behavior. So she told Isakoff, you're barking up the wrong tree. In the following days, the journalist called her repeatedly, wanting more information. After several weeks of badgering, Linda finally gave in. She invited Isakoff to her home in Columbia, Maryland, north of D.C. Linda insisted from the beginning that everything she said would be off the record and that Isakoff couldn't use her name in his reporting. Then she told stories she'd waited years to share. Old White House gossip, rumors about multiple women employed by the president in order to keep their affairs hushed up, and the Kathleen Willie story. But she added one more. The story of a friend who had had an affair with the president. She didn't use Monica's name or give any identifying details, but she couldn't not tell this reporter. As intrigued as Isakoff was, there wasn't much he could do with the information. The relationship was consensual. It wasn't like Paula Jones's accusations. And it would be difficult to prove the facts if Linda refused to share names or details. Several months later, Isakoff got in touch again. He was about to publish his story about Kathleen Willey's encounter with Clinton, and he wanted Linda to finally go on the record. Without a named source, it would be easy for the president to dismiss the story as gossip. If Linda wanted him held accountable, she couldn't stay anonymous. Reluctantly, Linda agreed. The Newsweek article came out on August 10, 1997. It caused a sensation. Here was yet another sex scandal involving the president, and Linda's name was right there in print, backing up all the allegations. But as Linda read the article, her heart dropped. The article also quoted Bill Clinton's personal lawyer, who was defending the president in the Paula Jones lawsuit. He denounced Linda as someone who couldn't be trusted. Suddenly, Linda realized that she might have gotten in over her head. She had publicly accused the president of the United States of misbehavior. She had made herself a target. Worst of all, by putting herself out there, she had made herself a candidate for a subpoena in the Paula Jones case. She could be asked to testify under oath about Clinton's behavior with other women. If that happened, she'd have no choice but to tell what she knew about Monica's affair.
When Monica saw the article, she told Linda that she understood her friend's decision to talk to the press about Kathleen Willey. At the time, her relationship with the president was complicated. She still maintained she loved Clinton and that he loved her. But she was frustrated that he still seemed to be doing nothing to help her get back to the White House. Linda bore the brunt of Monica's wild emotional swings. The two women were speaking multiple times a day, not only at work, but over the phone at night, well into the early hours. The more that Monica cried and poured her heart out, the more Linda's anger and disgust at Clinton hardened into rage and indignation. This was a man who pretended to be an advocate for women's rights while treating the women in his life incredibly poorly. Linda had to do something more. Bill Clinton deserved to get his comeuppance. A few weeks later, late one night in September 1997, Linda picked up the phone and called Lucianne Goldberg. Lucianne was the literary agent and right-wing operator she had worked with when she thought she might write her gossipy, tell-all book. She told Lucianne the details of what she knew about Clinton's behavior. Again, she kept Monica's name out of it, but she insisted that this time she wanted to expose him. Linda's greatest fear had always been losing her job. After going on the record in the Newsweek article, she was a bit less concerned. Lucianne also assured her that she wouldn't have to worry about her job when she was raking in the big bucks. Writing a book would be lucrative, and even more money would come in the movie and TV rights. The prospect of that kind of money overwhelmed Linda's remaining fears. It was both an incentive and a silver lining to coming forward. The plan they hatched was this. Linda would tell Michael Isakoff everything she knew. The investigative reporter had proven that he wasn't afraid of embarrassing the president. Then, once his story had come out, Linda and Lucianne would cash in by spinning the article into a salacious tell-all book. The only problem was proof. Both Monica and the president would deny everything publicly. Without hard evidence of Linda's claims, her story would disappear, Clinton would remain untouched, and neither Linda nor Lucianne would make any money. Lucianne proposed an idea. If Linda taped her and Monica's phone calls, she'd get all the proof they needed. Linda recoiled at the suggestion. It was one thing to try to hold Clinton accountable. It was another to betray her friend like that. Besides, she wasn't even sure if it was legal to tape people without their knowledge. Lucianne hurried to reassure her. It was perfectly legal. She reminded Linda, too, to think of how Clinton had been treating Monica. Linda was doing this to help her friend. Later that week, Linda bought a $100 voice-activated tape recorder at Radio Shack. And then she started recording her calls with Monica. During the first weeks of taped calls, Monica talked about how she was trying to break off the relationship completely. She wanted out. It was safer for her, and for the best for them both. The only downside was that it meant she'd never be able to get that job she wanted in the White House. Linda suggested that Monica ask the president to help her find a job somewhere else, maybe for an NGO 
or through his contacts in the private sector. As much as this sounded like friendly advice, Linda realized that even the end of Monica's relationship with the president could be useful to her story. If Clinton helped find Monica a job, then the scandal would become more than a question of sexual morality. It would be about corruption and public trust. The president would be arranging prestigious jobs for people he wanted to control. While she waited to see if Clinton would fall into this trap, Linda reached out to Lucianne. She filled her in on what she'd managed to record. And in October 1997, Linda and Lucianne agreed that they were ready to meet the reporter Michael Isakov. This time, Linda would give him all the details he needed, including the tapes. The meeting took place in Washington, at Lucianne's son's apartment. As Isakov snacked on pistachios and took notes, the two women started to fill in the blanks of the story. A cassette player sat on the coffee table. Finally, Linda pressed play. As soon as the recorded conversation began to fill the room, Isakov asked her to turn it off. He didn't want to hear it. He didn't like the ethics of secret tapes. And besides, he trusted his own reporting skills to get the story. He only wanted one thing. A name. This was it. The moment Linda told Isakov about Monica, she would be betraying her friend's confidence. But she would also be holding Clinton accountable and helping Monica out of a situation with a guy who wasn't good for her. She gave Isakov Monica's name. On the taped call that same night, Monica told Linda that she had decided to follow her friend's advice and ask Clinton to find her a job outside the White House. She remembered that he'd once said that he could get her a job at the United Nations in a heartbeat. Over the phone, Linda helped her friend draft the letter to Clinton, asking the president to find her a job at the UN before the end of the year. When Clinton did what Monica asked, he had no idea that he was walking straight into Linda and Lucianne's trap. He contacted the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and set up an interview for his 25-year-old former girlfriend. But Monica threw a wrench in the plans. After getting the interview, she decided she didn't want to stay in Washington after all. Instead, she wanted to move to New York and work in the private sector. She asked Clinton whether his close friend and big-time D.C. lawyer Vernon Jordan would help out. A week later, Monica met Vernon Jordan for the first time. On the spot, she gave him a list of jobs she was interested in in New York. Later that evening, Linda went around to Monica's apartment to hear how the meeting went. As they chatted, Monica browsed through the clothes in her closet. She pulled out a navy blue dress from Gap and showed it to Linda. She had worn it to a radio address with Clinton at the beginning of the year. After the radio address, the president had taken Monica to his private office. On the dress, still there, eight months later, was a stain. A telltale sign of their sexual relationship. Linda immediately realized that she was looking at cold, hard evidence of the affair. This was exactly what she needed for her story. But there was no way she could just take this dress from Monica. Instead, 
Linda warned Monica not to have the dress cleaned. She should keep it as a kind of insurance policy in case Clinton ever tried to smear or defame her, as he had done with other women. Monica couldn't even imagine the possibility of the affair being exposed, let alone that the president would deny it. But, as usual, she followed Linda's advice and stowed the dress away. The dress that would one day be used against her in court. As the weeks wore on, Linda's collection of secretly recorded tapes piled up. She had more than 20 hours worth, and she still wasn't any closer to nailing down the conclusive proof she needed. Monica had never explicitly spelled out on tape what was going on. And why should she? That's not how people talk. In mid-November 1997, Linda went back to Lucienne with an idea for how to move things along. What if she were a witness in the Paula Jones lawsuit? If Paula's lawyers subpoenaed her, she'd have to testify about what she knew about the president's behavior, and that would include his affair with Monica. Since Paula Jones had first come forward in 1994, her case had turned into a long-running saga, This was part of her lawyer's plan. In fact, their strategy was to keep the story in the news long enough to demonstrate that Clinton's many affairs, along with the accusations of sexual harassment against him, were a consistent pattern of behavior. They wanted to discredit the president by arguing that he was a dishonest sexual deviant. Because Paula's lawyers weren't just any lawyers. They were part of a right-wing Republican network of media and legal figures who wanted to bring down the Democratic president. Behind the scenes, people like the lawyer George Conway, the columnist Ann Coulter, and the blogger Matt Drudge were using every tool available to get Democrats out of office. Lucianne Goldberg was one of the crucial players in this network. All of Linda's information was going straight on to the other members of the circle. So word soon went out that Linda Tripp wanted to get herself subpoenaed. A few weeks later, Linda got a call from one of Paula's lawyers. She explained that she was ready to talk to them, but she wanted it to look like she was being forced to do so. If people knew she'd volunteered to testify against the president and her friend, her reputation would suffer right away. Once her mind was set at ease, she gave the lawyer Monica's name, and told him all about the secret tapes of their conversations. As she did so, Linda knew the matter was now out of her hands. When she had given Monica's name to Michael Isakov, she had known the journalist would keep it to himself until he had enough evidence to publish his story. But once Paula's lawyers were aware of Monica, Linda knew it was only a matter of time before everything came out. With President Clinton due to give his deposition in the case in a matter of weeks, that time was running short. The moment that Paula Jones's legal team submitted questions to his lawyers about someone named Monica Lewinsky, Clinton himself knew that his affair would be exposed. But even as Linda's testimony approached, her plan was stalling. Monica still didn't have a new job. Clinton's friend Vernon Jordan hadn't done anything to help her find a role in the private sector in New York. Until he did, Linda's story was a gossipy one about an affair. 
She couldn't prove that the president had used his influence to find his ex-mistress a job because, well, Monica didn't have one. To make matters worse, Linda discovered a major problem when she consulted a lawyer in advance of her testimony in the Paula Jones case. During the meeting, she mentioned that she'd been taping Monica Lewinsky for months. To her horror, her lawyer informed her that those tapes were illegal. In the state of Maryland where she lived, it was against the law to secretly record someone without their consent. Lucianne's insistence that she was in the clear was wrong. Linda had been committing a crime the whole time. Now she couldn't turn over the tapes to Paula's lawyers. If her illegal taping were found out, the president's lawyers would pounce on her. Not only would Linda be discredited, but the Paula Jones case could be thrown out too. Just as Linda was starting to lose hope, her phone rang. It was Monica. She was in tears, crying and scared. Despite knowing she was breaking the law, Linda turned on her tape recorder. Monica sobbed that she had been served with subpoena papers while she was at work at the Pentagon. Paula Jones's lawyers wanted to question her. Worst of all, she had also been ordered to turn over every letter and gift she had ever received from President Clinton. Monica's life was falling apart. She needed Linda's help. She didn't know who else to go to. As the two women talked it through, Monica decided that her only way out was to deny everything. She would sign an affidavit saying she had never had an affair with the president. That would solve the problem. There was no way there was enough evidence to prove her wrong. Linda pointed out that if she denied it under questioning, under oath, that would be perjury. The same went for Linda, too. If she denied knowing about Monica's relationship, she would perjure herself. Monica understood, but she begged Linda to lie on her behalf. Her life would be over if the affair became public. If they both just denied it, the problem would go away. Linda refused. She hadn't had a problem lying to Monica or manipulating her, but being dishonest in a legal proceeding was another matter entirely. She wouldn't do it. Over the next few weeks, at the end of 1997 and beginning of 1998, Monica continued to beg Linda to lie for her as the two women waited to be called up for their testimonies. Linda continued to refuse. The growing pressure cast a shadow over their formerly close relationship. Monica began to realize that perhaps she shouldn't share everything with Linda. She still had no idea about the tapes, though. Nor that one of the right-wing activist lawyers had come up with a solution to Linda's Catch-22. At that point, independent counsel Kenneth Starr was three years into his investigation of the Clintons. He was still scrutinizing the Whitewater scandal and the other allegations of corruption. But he had also widened the inquiry to include the accusations of infidelity and sexual harassment against the president. Knowing this, Linda's activist lawyer contact suggested that she approach Kenneth Starr and give him the tapes, requesting immunity from prosecution as a witness. No doubt Linda's evidence would be welcome. 
Linda balked at the idea. Giving a witness statement in a lawsuit was one thing. But going to the powerful independent counsel? That was the big leagues. Rumors were swirling that the investigation could result in an impeachment. If anything went wrong, the consequences could be catastrophic for Linda. But if she wanted to follow through on what she'd set out to do, she didn't have many options left. So, late at night, on Monday, January 12, 1998, Linda called Kenneth Starr's chief deputy, Jackie Bennett. Linda started by speaking in hypotheticals. What if she had a friend who was having an ongoing affair with the president? What if she had been secretly taping that friend for months? What if the president was helping to find a job for that friend? And most importantly, if Linda handed over those tapes, would she be immune from prosecution? Even posed as hypotheticals, this was exactly what the star team wanted to hear. For months, they had been searching for any kind of smoking gun. Now they had it almost within their grasp. About an hour later, Bennett and an FBI agent showed up at Linda's house. The three spoke until the early hours, as Linda painted a picture of how fearful she was, how Monica was pressuring her to lie about what she knew, how she was worried about losing her job. But there were some things Linda deliberately left out of her story. She didn't tell them that she had been in touch with Paula Jones's lawyers, offering her help and Monica Lewinsky's name. And she also didn't dare mention that she was still speaking to the journalist Michael Isakov, who was getting close to publishing his account of the entire story. What she did tell them was that she wanted to continue taping Monica. She thought it could be valuable and suggested she should wear a wire the next time she met up with her friend. As it happened, they had plans the very next day. Bennett realized that night that he had an opportunity. If they caught Lewinsky in a lie, then they could try and flip her to make her testify against the president. It was the biggest ace card they could possibly get. And it depended on Linda manipulating her friend one last time. At 2.30 p.m. the next day, January 13, 1998, Linda arrived at the dining room of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Pentagon City, a massive mall complex in Northern Virginia. She had a microphone strapped to her thigh. Upstairs, the prosecutors and FBI agents were setting up speakers to listen to her conversations. As she walked to a table, she felt like everyone was staring at her. There was no way she was going to be able to keep her cool. But then Monica arrived. Linda had to pretend to be normal. At first, Monica was wary. She denied everything that Linda asked. No, she still hadn't gotten help finding a job. No, she hadn't signed the affidavit denying the affair. Unbeknownst to Linda, both of these things had already happened. When Linda went to the bathroom, Monica even rummaged through her supposed friend's bag. But, of course, she found nothing. As the afternoon wore on, Monica finally began to relax. She once again begged Linda to lie under oath about the affair, 
It was the only way to keep things from blowing up. Monica even claimed that Clinton's friend Vernon Jordan had been the one to tell her to deny the affair had ever happened. Linda knew that this was what the investigators needed and encouraged Monica to keep going. By the time the two women parted ways that day, the prosecutors had plenty of valuable evidence. But like Linda, they wanted more. Over the next few days, they continued recording Linda's conversations with Monica, in person and over the phone. At one point, Monica even drew up a three-page memo that laid out a strategy for how Linda could maneuver her way out of telling the truth. Linda handed that over to the FBI, too. As the week wore on, Linda stopped feeling guilty about betraying Monica. She told herself that the young woman only had herself to blame. It was her fault alone that she'd lied to the authorities time and time again and begged others to lie on her behalf. Linda had merely done what was right. With the evidence gathered, all that remained was for the prosecutors and the FBI to confront Monica. She would have no choice but to become their star witness. On Friday, January 16th, Linda arranged to meet Monica for lunch in the food court at Pentagon City. When she arrived around quarter to one, Monica was already waiting. Linda descended the escalator to meet her, nervous, sweating. And then, before they could even greet each other, the FBI appeared. They flashed their badges at Monica and asked her to come upstairs. Linda watched the color drain from the younger woman's face. Monica had had no idea this was coming. In a hotel room upstairs, Linda stood by, watching, as the FBI agents laid out the situation for Monica. Monica had been caught on tape discussing her plans to commit perjury and obstruction of justice, not to mention witness tampering. If she was found guilty of those crimes, she could spend 20 years in prison. To avoid jail, the investigators suggested that she become a witness in independent counsel Kenneth Starr's investigation into crimes related to the Paula Jones lawsuit. Looking at Linda, a woman she considered a second mother, Monica finally understood what was happening. As Monica started to process the betrayal, Linda insisted that she'd done this to help the younger woman. This was really the best thing for Monica, too. Monica burst into tears and didn't stop. But Linda didn't have time to feel guilty. Now that she had immunity, she felt safe talking to Paula Jones's attorneys. After all, Clinton was finally due to give his sworn testimony the following day. The lawyers wanted any details Linda could give them so they could catch the president in a lie while he was under oath. That was exactly what happened. Neither the president nor his lawyers had any idea about the events of the last week. They had no clue that Linda had taken the details from Monica to the star team, the Paula Jones team, and Michael Isakoff at Newsweek. And so on that Saturday, Bill Clinton, president of the United States of America, testified under oath that he never had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. Seven months later, in early September 1998, 
Kenneth Starr finally released his long-awaited report into the affair. It ran to almost 450 pages, and it contained the most salacious and sordid details of Bill Clinton's conduct. It was this report which gave Republicans in Congress the license to push ahead with impeachment proceedings. The president's affair, and more importantly, his lying about the affair, could now cost him his job. As Linda had predicted, Monica's stained blue dress was a key piece of evidence. In October, the House voted to hold an open-ended inquiry into the president's conduct. It was just before the midterm elections, in which the Republicans lost seats. By December, the House narrowly voted to put forward two articles of impeachment against Bill Clinton. The first was for perjury, for allegedly lying before the grand jury about having a sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky. The second was for obstruction of justice in the Paula Jones lawsuit. In February the next year, 1999, the Senate acquitted the president. Rulings came down in the Paula Jones suit, too. The judge dismissed the case, arguing that it would be impossible to prove that her treatment by Clinton amounted to a violation of her civil rights, which is what her lawyers were arguing. Instead, Clinton settled the case, promising to pay out $850,000. But Paula Jones didn't initially bring the case for money. She wanted Clinton to acknowledge how he had treated her, and she wanted an official apology. She never received either of those things. Not only that, but allegations of Clinton's wrongdoing continued to come to the surface. In February 1999, an Arkansas woman named Juanita Broderick appeared on NBC's Dateline to claim that Clinton had sexually assaulted her in 1978. Bill Clinton's lawyers denied the allegations. As for Linda, she would frequently state over the years that what she did was out of patriotic duty and the need to do the right thing. But the truth is a bit more complicated than that. Many believe that she did not reveal what she knew about the Lewinsky affair out of the goodness of her heart. They note that she planned twice to publish a book about the details of the case, and that she had ties to a group of right-wing lawyers, journalists, and activists who were interested in bringing down the president. When her role in the affair was made public, instead of being treated like a hero, Linda Tripp was publicly ridiculed for her looks. She was lampooned on Saturday Night Live and on the late-night talk shows. Although she said she enjoyed some of the jokes made about her, the jibes around her appearance clearly got to her. In 1999, she underwent extensive plastic surgery. Monica Lewinsky was widely criticized in the press for her part in her affair with the president. The last comment Monica Lewinsky made on the stand was that she hated Linda Tripp. For years, Monica was the victim of bullying in the press and online. But in recent years, public opinion has changed a little, and many people see her as something of a victim in the story. She is now an anti-bullying activist and successful television personality. In 2020, Linda Tripp's family revealed that she had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. 
Monica Lewinsky tweeted that no matter their past, she hoped for Linda's recovery and couldn't imagine how difficult it was for Linda's family. Linda passed away on April 8, 2020, at the age of 70. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Linda Tripp, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jeffrey Tubin's A Vast Conspiracy and Michael Isakoff's Uncovering Clinton, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for Parcast, produced in partnership with Stable, executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, and David McGuire, developed for podcast by Julian Boireau, written by James Robbins and Kate Thorman, produced by Alice Homewood, mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable, and hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez.